0: Okay, so I need I need your help for an experiment. For some reason, there's too many wireless things in the air, messing up my microphones. And so, would you? I want to try something. Is it sound normal now? Yeah. Okay. All right. I was gonna have you turn airplane mode on on your phone because it works until y'all get in the room. When you get in the room, it like stops working. So we're gonna try we're gonna try it. If it starts gargling. <laughs> Fasten the blame. Uh, so if it starts gargling, I may have you turn your phones off. But where I got this back, I'm going to have to hold this corded mic, and that's going to drive me crazy. All right, hopefully we- we're good. Uh, Acts chapter 17. Did it just do it? Oh, my word. I'm going to pull my hair out. I don't even have any hair. <laughs> Acts chapter 17. Well, turn, turn your airplane on on your phone real quick for me. If everybody can do that, let's see if it works. Let's see if y'all are the problem. You're not the problem. It's not you. Airplane mode, or turn, if you don't know how to do that, just turn your phone off. All right. I don't know if that's gonna do anything, but we're gonna see. Check one, two. Acts chapter 17. <sighs> hey, at least now, knowing you'll be worried about get texting on your phone, you'll listen to the sermon. See, I just tricked y'all. All right, Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16. Read down to almost the end. All right. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes these words Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. But others said, we will hear you again about this. This is the word of the Lord. The first real mission trip that I ever really went on was uh, to New Orleans. And in my mind, when I thought about New Orleans, I thought about uh, Mardi Gras and I thought about drunkenness and parties and nudity and drugs filling the streets. When I, think of, when I thought of uh, New Orleans and Mardi Gras in particular, I thought of uh, Sin City. And so we, we head down to New Orleans, and we uh, get into our, the place we're staying, and, and uh, we settle into our rooms, and the, the, the pastor comes over, and he's going to kind of do like a, a training session with us to kind of introduce the city to us and talk to us about what we're going to be doing and, and all these kinds of things, and what, what to do in this city and what not to do in this city. And it was February. And one of the first things he begins to tell us is that, well, tomorrow uh, uh, we're going to be going out to such and such uh, city and we're going to go to the Mardi Gras parade. And I'm like, what? There are youth here. They can't, we can't be going to Mardi Gras. They're going to have to cover their eyes. Like, they're just going to be seeing stuff they ain't supposed to be seeing. And he says, no, we're going to Mardi Gras and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do all these different things. And he said, you might think that that this city is sin city. You might think that this city is just the worst of the worst, the, the bottom of the barrel. Um, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he said, but really, when, when we see our city, we see this city as a place God loves. And the, and the people, that they, what they love, we want to love. And so he talked about how in this city, that it's marked by some things. And it's marked by food, that food was this huge part of the culture. Whether that was uh, po'boys, which I had no idea what it was. And I learned what a po'boy was. Or whether it was beignets, and I didn't know what a beignet was, but learned what a beignet was. And, and it, so we got to go eat those things. And so food was a huge part of their culture. He talked about if a restaurant wasn't amazing, it would be gone in six months after it started. He talked about how the city loved parties. And I was like, yeah, I believe that one. They talk about how they love to party, they love to get together, and on and on. And so he said, and this is what struck me, he said that so because this is what our city loves, we want to embrace and love those things too. We want to love food, we want to love partying, we want to love getting together, and so on. But our goal is to show, to show the city that Jesus loves these things too, that he created these things, and that he knows how to do them best. That they do them wrongly. They pervert these things. And Jesus knows how to do them best. That no one throws a better party and cooks and has better food than Jesus. And so when he said that, I was struck. And like In that moment, I want you to know, I was, was blown away. Because I wanted to come to the city and, and, and look at it from a distance and see the darkness. And I didn't want to step into people's lives. I wanted to just speak from a distance and call people out of the darkness into the light. But he showed us that they were never going to reach the city that way. If we were going to reach that city, we had to meet people where they were. We had to engage people where they were with love and patience and show them that what they valued, God valued. This morning, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul goes to Athens. Now understand, in Athens, Athens is one of the largest cultural hubs in the known world in all of Rome at this time. Athens would have been like the New York City of today. Everything is happening there. Everything is changing there. If you want to have influence, you got to go to New York City. If you want to influence, you want to be a part of culture, you want to be a part of what's going on, you need to be in Athens. Not only do we find Paul going to Athens, we find him in the marketplace. Now, it's important to understand that the marketplace is not like Paul is hanging out at Old Navy. And as people are coming out, he's like, shoppers, hey, I got a deal for you. That's not what he's doing. He is not at the Old Navy. The marketplace in Athens is, is not like anything that exists today. The marketplace was the, the center or the hub of where all culture happened. Because there was no social media, there was no news, uh, everything in the marketplace, it was, it was uh, the academy, it was philosophers, it was the arts, it was news, it was social media, it was all of the things, those things combined into one. And so you would have found heralds talking about what is going on in the world, telling you the news. You would have found philosophers like Plato and Aristotle debating philosophies. Of, uh, you would have found politics being debated. You would have found uh, religious guys debating the pantheon of different gods and what was going on. You would have had artists showing off their sculptures and their artwork and on and on. It was the hub center of culture. And, and, that, and that spot is where we find the apostle And Paul presents us with, I think, this incredible model. It's an incredible model to follow. And if we do what I think we will find in the passage this morning, if we do this, I think we'll find not just another tactic to share the gospel, not just another guide like a Roman road or four spiritual laws or something like that. We're not going to find another gospel guide this morning. Instead, I think we will see how we should see the world And therefore, how to engage it. How we see the world and then how we engage it. As we step foot into the marketplace of ideas. Every day. When you go to work or you you step into the marketplace of ideas in your life. As we step into the world. As employees, as business owners. As we give political commentary. As we engage philosophical ideas. Whether through conversations or social media or whatever. How we see the world, how we see people will change how we engage. And I believe if we apply Paul's example, we're going to see this morning, it will help us to engage people in the world better. So let's start with verse 16. It says, Now now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. There was a saying in Athens, It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. To this day, if you go to Athens, there are the ruins of temples everywhere. You would have found, there were idol statues, there were temples, they're everywhere. To Zeus, to Apollo, to Apollyon, to Athena, all these different gods. Statues and idols and temples to them. They were everywhere. And so Paul is in this idolatrous filled city. Where everyone is worshiping false gods, living in ignorance and rebellion against God, and how does Paul react? He was not intimidated by them, and he wasn't seduced by them. So he wasn't scared of being around them, the sinfulness, the brokenness, the worldly things. He wasn't scared to be around that, and he wasn't worried about succumbing to them. The text says that he was provoked. When he sees the idolatry and the worldliness and the brokenness, he was provoked. Now, what does that mean? Provoked is this really complicated Greek word, and it just means upset. It's simple. To be provoked just means to be upset. Paul looks, and he sees this brokenness, and he's mad about it. He sees this idolatry, and he's mad. He sees the Athenians, and he's brokenhearted. He sees all these people led astray into ignorance and darkness, worshiping these false gods, and it makes him mad, it upsets him. He's provoked. But here's the important thing to notice. Paul's anger leads him to engage with the gospel. He doesn't do what we so often are in the habit of doing. We often see the brokenness of the world, and we get mad about it, And instead of going toward and engaging, we sit and we stew and we point our finger and we cast flame and we rant on social media and we just complain about the brokenness, right? We see things we don't like in the world and we go, well, I just can't believe that. Well, this world, this world is just going to hell in a handbasket. Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't go, gosh, I just can't believe all these idols out here. Are y'all serious? This is so dumb. You act like you don't have a brain. I can't believe what this country's turning into. That's not what he does. He's heartbroken over the state of the culture of the city. He's heartbroken over the people who are being led into idolatry. And it fills his heart with compassion. And he moves toward people, not away from them. He doesn't like what he sees. He hates the state of the city. But it moves him toward them, not away from them. It moves him to action. Our hearts should be broken over the state of the world, but it should move us toward people, not away from them. When we do this, when our hearts break for the world, and we are armed and secured in the gospel, we can engage the world, we can engage people, people whom, here, and here's the, here's the hard part, we can engage people with whom we disagree with vehemently, right? But we can have compassion and love and tenderness toward those people we disagree with. We can move toward them in grace without fear of what those people are doing, that we're going to fall into it or somehow be stained by it. See, it's possible for us to be in the world and not of it. We can engage the culture without being shaped by the culture. And that's the really hard thing, right? It's hard to engage the culture without being shaped by the culture because we get pulled into it and we take our sides. Our hearts must break. If we're going to do this right, if we're going to engage right, our hearts have to break over the state of the world. We must not be in it. We must be distinct from the world. We must see the world for what it is. We must see the fallen realities, the curse of sin and the idolatry in the world, and our hearts have to break. Then, and only then, can we step toward the world in compassion and engage the world with the gospel and seek to change the world through the gospel. So the first thing we've got to see is so that we will only rightly engage the culture when our hearts are broken over the state of the world. We will only rightly engage. Understand the key word there, rightly engage, when our hearts are broken over the state of the world. Now, look at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, he is talking and sharing about his thoughts in the marketplace of ideas, and there are some people that are interested in what Paul is saying. They're interested and they want to hear more. They want to understand more about this Jesus guy. But notice the last line of what we just read. They spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. See, this Roman, this Greco-Roman culture loved their gods, and they had a lot of them. They had all kinds of gods. They, they, and if you were able to come present a, a new god of some new area, they might just add them to the list, right? They had god, the god of Poseidon, the god of the sea, they had Zeus, I don't know, the main big god. They had the phoenix, the I don't know, god of love, you've got god of fertility, Right, they, all gods for all different things, and if you came saying, "Hey, here's this god," you know what they would do? They would just say, "Cool, add him to the list, add him to the pantheon. We'll worship that god too." Do you see the problem? If Paul didn't understand that, if he didn't understand that about these people, then Paul could have been sharing Jesus with people, could have been telling them all about Jesus, and they might have said, "Awesome, yes." We'll believe in him. Absolutely we'll follow Jesus. Cool. Catch you guys later. And Paul would not have realized that they would have just added Jesus to the list of Zeus and Apollo and Athena and all the rest. And they would have worshipped Jesus right alongside all the other ones. If he didn't understand them, he would have made that mistake. But because Paul knew his audience, but because Paul knew who he was talking to, he understood their culture and who they were. He knew that they would just add Jesus to the list of gods. So Paul had to make it clear that Jesus was not just a god to add to the list. That Jesus was the God of creation. That he was the king of kings and lord of lords. That he wasn't just one of many gods. He wasn't even the top god. He was the only god. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he was the only god that should be worshipped. And so in the next few verses, Paul, step by step, goes and shows how Jesus is not just a God that can be served by human hands. You can't do anything for him. He's not, he doesn't live in temples. He goes on and on and, and, and deconstructs their worldview and shows them how Jesus alone can be God. But if Paul did not understand who he was talking with, if he did not understand his audience, he would not have been able to effectively engage them with the gospel in the way they needed to understand it. They didn't need another God of the sea. They didn't need another God of the harvest. They needed the God, the creator, the one and only true God. If we are going to engage the world, Fellowship Baptist Church in 2021, if we're gonna engage the world with the gospel, we must understand our audience. When I was on that mission trip in New Orleans, one of the interesting things that that pastor was telling us was that, uh, that the, the, the New Orleans is very Catholic, right? Historically Catholic, I mean, half their signs are in French or half French, right? And you look at that and you're like, those letters don't, what does that say, right? And and, and so it's very Catholic culture. Mardi Gras is a Catholic thing. Fat Tuesday, Catholic thing. And so being a Catholic is just cemented into the culture. But most of the people there were not practicing Catholics. They were just, that was kind of how they identified culturally. And he said that because of that, They looked at Protestants, whether that be Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, whatever. They looked at us in the same way that we look at like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, like this kind of weird, odd Christian cult. That when they see a Baptist church van rolling down the street, they thought we were a cult. He said, now that's begun to change because of Hurricane Katrina. He said, after Hurricane Katrina came through and destroyed the city, all of these people began to notice these Baptist church fans, these Methodist church fans, and all whatever, coming and helping rebuild the city, but fixing houses, all this stuff, cleaning up. And so it's begun to soften their hearts toward these weird Baptist cult people. And so, because of that, he said, Listen, we're not going to hide who we are. If anyone asks you what denomination our church belongs to, you tell them we're a Baptist church. But make sure that the flag we are flying is not Baptist, but Jesus. Because we do not want to put up a wall for people who don't understand what it means to be a Baptist. We would just want them to see Jesus. And so let's, let's talk about Jesus. You got to know your audience. You've got to understand your audience and the culture if you're going to engage them well and speak clear and helpfully. Let me give you another example. One of the things that everyone has to understand before they give their life to Christ is that they are broken, right? That they're a sinner. If you're going to come to Jesus, you've got to understand you are not a good person, you are not righteous, and you need God to forgive you. You are a sinner. Well, if you are engaging with somebody from Generation Z, and if you don't know, Generation Z are... These people right here. Okay? They are younger than me. If you are going to engage Generation Z with the gospel, you do not need to spend any time at all trying to convince them that they are broken. They know it. There's a lot of cultural reasons why that's the case. I don't have time to go into all the reasons. But just understand, they know that they're messed up and broken and they need some help. Amen? They need some help. You don't have to do that. But... If you are going to try to share the gospel with a baby boomer, they're sprinkled through that. Or sometimes Generation X, so my parents and my grandparents, if you're going to share the gospel with them, you actually have to spend some time convincing them that they're broken. You have to spend some time convincing them that they're sinners, that they're jacked up. Because they don't see themselves that way. They see themselves as pretty clean, pretty pretty upright, good people. And so you've got to start with Genesis 3, the fall. You're broken. Generation Z, you don't have to do that. You've you got to start with Genesis, you know, with the New Testament. Like, we can skip Genesis 3. They get it. But with, with an older generation, you've got to start there. And you've got to know your audience or you wouldn't get that. Church planners call this contextualization. That we have to contextualize the gospel, we have to package the gospel in a way that is helpful for the one who is hearing it, so that they hear it well. We contextualize or bring the gospel into greater clarity by meeting people where they are. We don't need a cookie cutter program to share the gospel. We don't need, you know that little, that little, block, the little block thing, like we don't need that. I mean, it's a helpful tool, but we don't need that. We need to contextualize the gospel to fit the type of person we're talking to. Now notice what Paul does next. So his heart breaks for these people and it moves them toward them. Then he understands who they are. And then he finds common ground with them in order to present the gospel to them in a way that connects with them. Really, we see him do this in three ways. First, in verse 22, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He looks at all the idols and he makes a pretty fair conclusion. You guys are religious, right? They're not atheists. He knows he's not dealing with atheists, so he doesn't need to convince them that there is a God. He needs to convince them of the right God. But then he does something brilliant in verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, Paul finds common ground with these people. He says, y'all, y'all have this idol right, you got, you got idols everywhere, but this idol right here, it has this interesting inscription on it, it says, to the unknown God, because they wanted to make sure to worship and give some cred to this God that maybe they hadn't discovered yet. And so they wanted to make a statue to the unknown God, because they, maybe there was another one out there, they, and they, they, they didn't want to leave him out and then cure his wrath, so they, they had this statue to the unknown God. Meaning... You know you don't know all the gods. Paul's like, you're, you're, you're owning, you don't get it all. There may be a God out there you don't know about. Well, Paul says, well, I want to tell y'all, you're right. The statue you have over here that says to the unknown God, you're right. There is a God you don't know. There is a God that is unknown to you, but I know him. And he is actually not just one of many gods. He is actually the God who created everything he is the only God. And I want to introduce you to him. See, he finds commonality between him and them. And he uses it to show them the truth they are missing. The third way he connects with them is in verse 28. He says, in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. He is quoting a Greek poem. For we are indeed his offspring. He's not quoting the Bible. He's quoting the Greek poets. He's using their music, their great authors, as a connection point to show them what they are actually looking for. He's saying, Your poets have said this. Your poets have said, We are indeed His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being. Your poets are right. Your music is right. We are His offspring because He is the Creator. To engage people with the gospel, we must show them how. The gospel fulfills the things they were already looking for. Because all of our desires, all of our desires are tainted by sin, right? Like they're broken. They're marred and disfigured. But our desires, often at their root, are good. Even unbelievers' desires at their root are good. Understanding this and applying this, I think this is one of the most helpful things. So if you haven't tracked with me, track here. And applying this, and, and it's going to be difficult for some of you. It's going to be uncomfortable for some of you. But if you can do it, if you can do it, I'm about to tell you, you will be able to build bridges with people you are currently at odds with and have no basis for connection. Some of you in this room have children that, you, that hold political positions or, or thoughts about the world or whatever that boggle your mind and you do not understand. Some of you have parents who hold positions and things about the world that boggle your mind and you don't understand. Or maybe you have friends who hold positions about things that boggle your mind and you don't understand. This, I think, will be helpful for you. When Paul shows up at Athens and he sees all the idols, he sees all this stuff he disagrees with. He doesn't bash them. He doesn't come out like the street preachers and and just start yelling, Sinner, repent! He doesn't do that. He doesn't bash them for their idolatry. He uses their idolatry idolatry as a connection point to show them the truth. You see, often when people hold to a position about something we disagree with, we only see that their conclusion is wrong. But what we have to start doing Is seeing that the truth behind that conclusion we don't like, the deeper truth, what what started them down that path, is a truth that we can probably both agree on. And show how that truth is at the core of the heart of God, the core of the gospel. Instead of getting mad when our culture is doing something we disagree with, instead of getting mad about where our culture is headed, we need to listen to what people are actually saying. Because if we listened, we would see that people who are far from God are crying out for God. They're crying out for Jesus, and they don't even know it. And we are too busy yelling at them to show them what their hearts are longing for. The Athenians were worshiping idols, and Paul says, I get it. But let me show you what your heart's actually longing for. Let me show you what you're missing. So let me give you some examples, and I think this will be helpful but hard. One of them we heard last week, and, and I was a little nervous last week when Nathan's brother was up here, and he went, yay, socialism! Because I knew somebody was going to clip that and not listen to the whole thing, and they're like, oh, yeah, fellowship's are all socialist. But socialism is all the rage, especially amongst young people right now, right? Why is it? Well, because we want to care for everyone. We don't want there to be homelessness. We don't want there to be struggling people who live in hunger and poverty. And while we might disagree that socialism is the answer to the world's problems of poverty and homelessness, we might disagree with that conclusion and think people who are socialists are crazy. We might think that. But there is a lot before you get to the conclusion of socialism that we can agree on. So you say, man. I believe in a God who is bringing a kingdom where there will will be no one who ever thirsts again. I believe God is building a kingdom where no one will be hungry, where every person will have everything they could ever need and ever want, where every desire will be met. But until that kingdom comes, until it fully gets here, we as a church work our tails off to make sure people are not hungry. To make sure that the kingdom of God in the future breaks into the present. That we want to end hunger and homelessness and poverty. Because we, and the reason we want to do that is because we believe every human has value and dignity and worth created in the image of God. And so we believe people shouldn't go hungry. We believe people shouldn't be homeless. Now we might disagree on how to get there. But boy, don't we both want to get there? We, we both want the world that socialism claims to create. We just think it doesn't, won't work. And we believe the kingdom of God can do it. Do you think if we started engaging people like that, that there would be yes, less yelling and more understanding, more opportunity for us to show God and his mission in a new light? Instead of just alienating people over their political persuasion, we actually show them how God is doing what they really want. God is making a world that is just and right and whole. We want that too. Now, let me give you another one. What about when people are calling for justice? It's been a big thing this past two years. Calls for justice, whether that's racial justice, social justice, or oddly enough, climate justice. Now, we might not agree on everyone's interpretation of every situation that requires justice. Those things get complicated and sticky. We might not agree on the solutions that people are advocating for. But can't we find common ground with them? (laughs) I mean, guys, we believe in a God of justice. We believe in a God who sent his son to die on a cross to satisfy his justice. If anyone can understand justice, it should be us. Like, we should get justice. The Bible is full of God caring for those who have been unjustly treated we should get that of all people so instead of letting the culture and here's the problem we get sucked into the culture and what culture tells us what side to take and we become right or left and we fly those flags we fly our black lives matter flag or we fly our blue lives matter flag or we fly all lives matter flag but the culture just sucked us into their argument But we have to learn to engage differently. We don't become culture warriors for the right or for the left. We find common ground between what people think on whatever side of the issue they are on, and we show them how what they think God is for. We gotta find, I mean, maybe it's way down the thread somewhere, but we gotta find that commonality. And so we say, yeah, you want justice, God is about justice. We read the whole Bible. It is about God setting things right. and God is, The whole point of the kingdom of God is that God is writing the world in justice and righteousness. And so when you, when you understand through this lens and this worldview that God is good and just, maybe we can connect with people and show them that God can actually accomplish what they are wanting, what they are desiring, and that God does it right and fully. Let me give you one more. Imagine you are talking with someone who doesn't believe in God because of how they have suffered. Because they can't believe in a God who would allow such pain and suffering in this world. Man, couldn't you say, man, I I hate that there's pain too. I hate that there is suffering in this world too. But do you know who hates pain and hates suffering and hates evil more than me and you? God does. God hates pain pain, and suffering more than we do. He hates it so much that he entered the world to enter our suffering. He came and suffered on our behalf, suffered the worst pain and the worst injustices and the worst betrayal and death. And he did that in order that he might put an end to pain and suffering and evil see, God in the beginning made a beautiful world that was so perfect and so good and so right. And we've messed it up. And there's this curse that has messed it up. But God suffered to put it back together. I understand that you suffered and you don't understand how a God could allow this to happen. But understand my God is undoing that and is righting all wrongs. You see, we, we don't agree with the confusion this person has of allowing suffering. Suffering means you shouldn't believe in a God, but we do believe in the premise. that Suffering and pain suck. God thinks that too. We will only effectively engage the world when we show them that God is the answer to their problems and desires. You desire justice, look to the cross and see justice on display. You desire a better world, look to the resurrection and see the new creation that is coming. You're mad about suffering, look to the one who suffered to end suffering. To engage effectively, we've got to find common ground. We must find the truth behind what people are saying and connect that Connect with them on that level to the gospel, to the truth. We must be able to look at someone we disagree with. Look at someone that we don't like what they have to say or what they believe. And not just get mad about it, but look at the the core of what they're saying. Look behind. Look deeper. And then show them why God is for or doing that thing. We have to not be like the street preachers who just want to bash and yell at everything they disagree with. we got to stop being on social media and just yelling at people. We have to engage with wisdom. We have to find common ground and then make a beeline to Jesus. We have to find common ground with people and make a beeline to Jesus. How do we make a beeline to Jesus? We do exactly what Paul does. We drive toward the resurrection. Verse 31, Paul says something interesting. He says that God has given, he's talked about all these things. He says, now God has given assurance that everything that I'm saying about Jesus is true. And the way that God has given assurance is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because if the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus said is true. And And we should give our whole lives to that cause. But if the resurrection is false, then none of this matters. Let's eat, drink, and party, be merry, for tomorrow we die and everything's meaningless. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it best. He said, Jesus is either, he, he can only be one of these things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. We can show the world that he is Lord by showing the credibility of the resurrection from the dead. That all of the evidence points that the resurrection happened. And if it did, everything he said is true. And he's not a lunatic and he's not a liar. He's Lord. And if he's Lord, we should give him our lives. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning as we wrap up. Are you provoked, like Paul was, by the state of the world? Are you provoked by the state of the world? Does it break your heart when you look at the world and you look at people and you look how they're led astray and you look at the things they're into? And if it does provoke you, if it does break your heart, how do you respond? How do you respond? Does that heartbreak move you in compassion toward other people? To lovingly and patiently and persuasively engage them with the gospel? To find common ground? To understand your audience? Or does it move you to say, to hell with this place and to hell with these people? Which one does it move you to? When you look at the brokenness of the world. Forget them. Move away from them. Or does it move you toward them in compassion? See, God loved us enough that when we were his enemies, when we were the idolatrous, pagans, rebellious and broken idolaters, he loved us so much that he came near. He drew near and gave his life for us. And so, too, in the same way, we see a broken world. We see an ignorant world, but we see, but what we must not do is retreat or abandon the world. We must move near. We must give our lives for those who don't appreciate us. That's hard, right? We gotta give our lives to people who don't appreciate us. We have to give our lives to people who call us bigots. We have to give our lives to people who call us old fashioned and out of date and out of touch. We don't throw our hands in the air and say, forget it, they'll never learn. We move nearer, still, giving our lives and our hearts and our words to them, to lovingly and patiently and persuasively engaging them with the gospel because that's their only hope. You are the front lines. You see, we don't see the world like the younger me saw in New Orleans, a bunch of drunk fools dancing about. Sin City, we see the world through gospel eyes, a world full of image bearers who have been deceived and led astray, just as we once had. When you see the world through those eyes, you won't see our disagreements first and foremost. You will see that these are people first, people for whom God bled and died. And when you see that, we won't move away we will move nearer and nearer still to engage them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you help us to, to think through our own minds and hearts and how we respond. And Lord, we know that there are some people in this room that Jesus has never been the answer to their problems. Jesus has never been the answer to their longings and desires. But maybe today, God, would you begin to show them that Jesus actually is is bringing about a world and doing the things in the world that we all actually long for, for truth and justice, for wholeness. God, would you show people this morning who are far from you, people sitting in this room right now who know that if they were to die, they'd bust hell wide open. Show them that they can come to you. They don't have to clean up their life. They don't have to get right first. They can come as they are and you will make them whole. And there's some people in this room, Father, this morning that have not been marked by someone who moves near people and engages them, but they are marked as people who are anger, have harsh words, and just want to fight on the peripheral issues. God, would you give us a spirit of repentance this morning? I want to be first in line to repent of the ways I have poorly engaged people and fought over the wrong things and missed opportunities to connect them with Jesus. But Father, would you help us to confess, repent, and would you give us the grace to change and to, instead of fighting and moving away from people and building walls, would you help us to build bridges, find common ground, to show them about the statue to the unknown God and say, the God that is unknown to you, well, I know him and let me introduce him. The God that you think you hate, the God that you think you don't understand, the God that you think is distant, let me show you how he's not those things. Help us engage. Help us repent and draw near the people that are far from you. You're here this morning and you need to to pray Maybe to confess some of that or to pray for a lost person that's in your life and you want to engage them more effectively. And we want to do that with you this morning. I want to pray with you this morning. We've got some guys on the side that love to pray with you. If you're here this morning and, man, you're far from God, like you know that you, Jesus is not in your heart, you do not follow him, stop playing games, stop pretending, and come to know him. Come find him this morning. And he will change your life forever. Father, give us the courage to respond as we need in Christ. And we pray, all people, say let stand and.